Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. So now we're going to move into the Q&A section. A lot of you have posted questions in the chat box. We're going, to, we're going to go through some questions first that we had received before the program in our slides. So this will give you an opportunity, if you haven't put your question in the Q&A box, to please move over to the Q&A and give us the question there. It'll be a lot easier for us to find that question than to search through the lengthy chat that we um, and if we, Rob, just, just before we do that uh, official transition to the Q&A portion, and I see you've got our, everybody's contact information up there, uh, you mentioned at the outset this is our eighth COVID-related uh, webinar. It will not be the last, and it certainly will not be the last of the several we've had for the child care sector specifically. Um, this is kind of the tip of the iceberg of this whole reopening and what it might look like. and again, not to be alarmist, but what the alternatives might be if reopening um, ends up not being feasible for you in either the short, medium, or long term. Um, and that's something that we're going to need to digest and absorb some more of the information that we expect to get over the next few days. And um, certainly everybody on this uh, participating today is going to be getting information from their various professional resources, uh, uh, not just lawyers, but accountants, auditors, that kind of thing, and, and the sector. And we really encourage everybody to um, you know, keep your ear to the ground and share anything and everything with each other. Um, as Amy has said, um, it's disappointing the way that this has come out for this sector. It's disrespectful and um, you know, advocating together and for each other is, is one way that we might be able to, uh, to all come out of this. And I, I say we because I've been working hand in hand with many of you on this call and, and the childcare industry in particular for the uh, 15 years, pretty much uh, or close to. Um, so to me, it's, it's a very important thing, not to mention having my kids in, in uh, licensed childcare as well. Um, but uh, that, so, so stay tuned for upcoming webinar or two on, uh, you know, kind of the next stage of considerations for childcare. Um, sorry, Rob, I didn't mean to hijack. Uh, no, that was really helpful. I think you can see uh, from both Amy's comments at the outset and also Charles' review of, of some of the materials that have come out, um, there's there's an enormous amount of information that we're still sifting through uh, to educate ourselves. And that's been the case, I think, continuously during this pandemic as new programs have been rolled out and we are trying to get information to our uh, our friends out in the in the various industries and our clients in particular. Uh, so it's been a challenge for for us to keep up to date and to learn this material and to to provide as as much guidance as we can, even while the rules uh, of the game have been changing uh, almost on a daily basis, particularly at the beginning. And we're probably going to see that uh, being replicated during this reopening phase there will be different and new rules about reopening that will have to be adhered to and all the things we talked about in terms of layoffs and recalling workers and now the, the statutory protected leave for non-union workers. Uh, we're going to put those learnings into practice and the rubber will 
hit the road in a, in a very real way for both stay tuned for more programs that we're going to run there. Did receive uh, prior to today's program and, uh, and we'll, I think, answer a number of the questions that are in the Q&A as part of these questions. So, uh, well, question number one, I think we already, we already answered that we had some discussion with uh, Charles uh, Kelsey and Amy about as a child care operator, are we allowed under any law to make COVID testing mandatory for our employees? So I don't think we need to continue that unless someone's got a particular comment they want to add that wasn't already addressed. Um, enrollment of, uh, of clients, students, children has decreased due to COVID-19. Are we obligated to rehire everyone back? If not, do the staff that's not returning remain on the CERB or EI? I'm going to, uh, Kelsey or, or Christina, that probably in terms of the, uh, in, in terms of the statutory protected leave, do you have any comments about that question? So I can jump in here. Um, with the protected leave, assuming that the employees in question are currently uh, or previous to May 29th had been on layoff, they are now deemed to be on that job protected infectious disease emergency leave. Uh, and one of the key protections that comes along with that is the right to reinstatement. Um, but thinking through the question here, I think one of the key issues is whether the enrollment issue uh, is long-term. So for example, if the, the center opens in June and it's not expected that you'll get back up to full capacity until, say, August or September. Uh, one way to navigate that may be to have the employee remain on the leave until it expires, which will be six weeks after the emergency order is lifted. And from that point, uh, return the employee to a run-of-the-mill temporary layoff in accordance with the ESA. So that then starts the... 13 or 35 week clock again, um, or continues it depending on how much time has passed. So it, it, it's something of a complicated question and will depend on the circumstances to some extent. Uh, I see that the follow-up, if not returning, do staff remain on CERB or EI? I think that also comes down to timing. Uh, so if em the employees are still eligible for CERB, uh, that would be what they're receiving. If they've exhausted their CERB entitlements, they would tr transition back to regular EI. And I think we've seen the federal government has extended the application October, so that that may be they may still have eligibility. Um, so for for the for the unionized workplaces, we're not talking about that statutory leave. We're talking about the usual recall uh, layoff provisions. So those would still be in place. Um, so. Well, I think we know the answer on seniority around the application of a collective agreement, but when we're recalling workers back to work uh, in the non-union setting, do we have to respect seniority in the order in which we recall them? Kelsey, why don't you talk about that? Sure, I'm happy to jump in there, Rob. Uh, I mean, short answer is no. When you're not um, subject to the requirements of a collective agreement that almost always have seniority as the default option for recall, provided, of course, that employees have the qualifications and skills and abilities to do whatever the job is that to which they're being recalled, 
you can do it based on whatever makes the most sense for you operationally. Um, the caveat there being, of course, we can't discriminate on any human rights protected ground, but if you're talking about a particular room that has nobody in it and you don't need those teachers, you don't need to recall them. Um, it's up to you as the employer to determine what is best for you operationally. <clears throat> so, I mean, part of this question, the secondary question in this one is about a room having no enrollment. So I think that's a, a kind of a, an operational specific type of question for uh, a larger uh, childcare center. But um, I, I guess the same question would apply here in terms of who you're recalling and, and how you're allocating the, the children to particular particular members of your staff. Is that fair to say, Kelsey? Yeah, I, th I think part of it is, um, you know, as Amy mentioned at the beginning, and then, you know, um, I think we saw, saw Pam, uh, Karen's comment about, you know, we know that there can be 10 people in a room, but as Amy said, we don't know what the ratios are. Um, under the traditional rules of the CCEYA, there are very limited mixed groupings allowed. Um, and Amy, feel free to jump in if you're still uh, available as to whether or not there's going to be um, any information about that. But, um, you know, in terms of the rooms, if it's specifically broken down the way they are now, then there's probably not a whole lot of reallocation you can do uh, unless they change how they look at, um, you know, the grouping for the, for the purposes of getting people back in childcare is uh, under these new restrictions. As far as I know, Kelsey, the CCEYA ratios remain in effect. Yeah, thank you, Amy. So the, the, the last part of this question, and it, it kind of rolls into the next question, which is uh, item four is, can we, can we leave employees on the CERB if, uh, you know, if we're not recalling them to work? And I think Christina's substantially answered that question. I think the one thing that, that I noticed in the news yesterday, we haven't seen any legislation yet, is a, uh, apparently there's a draft bill that's being considered by the federal government about uh, tightening some of the uh, entitlement criteria around CERB. And I think it's really focused on entitlement issues with uh, potential reopening of the economy, uh, but also uh, issues about um, uh, people who've been receiving CERB who might not be eligible for those and what types of enforcement uh, processes the federal government might apply to that. So we, we, we can't tell our employees uh, whether they're entitled to CERB. That is a decision to be made by the federal government. But if, um, if you're thinking about recalling employees and they refuse to come back to work, and we're going to come into that, I want Charles to speak to that next question. Um, you, you, you should keep an eye on some of those changes in the federal government uh, legislation. And we'll probably talk about that again once they, they may or may not come out. Uh, because if you do offer work uh, or an opportunity to people to come back to work and they, they deliberately refuse that opportunity, um, I, I can't foresee circumstances where that might impact their eligibility for CERB. So again, we don't have legislation yet. We don't really have uh, much information except what we've seen in, in some of the news articles. So it's premature for us to fully comment on that. But um, Charles, can, can you talk about that question about the fear 
and, and we've heard this, I think, throughout the entire pandemic, I'm afraid to come to work. Uh, or I've got my own issues with childcare uh, in terms of finding somebody. How do we how do we deal with those things in our in this particular industry sector? Yeah. So the any with the exception of the last one there, because I want to remain on CERB, which is never going to be an excuse or qualify someone for a leave of absence. Um, you have to. You really have to, and you might actually have to go back to the employee and do a little bit of digging to get a little bit more information. The fear of getting sick, unless, so there are certain situations um, where they will qualify for a leave. So they, they, they may come to you and suggest that they want some time off because they have a fear of getting sick. But the real reason might be because they're actually required to assist a family member um, who's in quarantine or whatever um with whatever it might be so the necessities of life or just just getting along in life in that kind of scenario then they, they may well qualify for a leave and in that case um the time frame to accommodate that request is really it will be driven by the type of leave that they qualify for so if they do qualify for the emergency the new infectious disease emergency leave uh, i believe the legislation says that essentially they can just go on the leave um, if they need to immediately, and then they have to inform you and provide evidence reasonable in the circumstances within a reasonable time. So in those kinds of cases, you really just try to get to the bottom of why the request is being made because employees don't always have the foresight or don't always know what the specific legislative requirements are. So just don't be afraid to ask certain types of questions. And then if they do qualify for the leave, basically the, the, the best guidance I can use is just try to be as reasonable. And the second piece there, sorry, go ahead, Rob. No, I think that's that's. I think the practical component of it is an important part to consider, e even in the order in which you're asking people to come back to work. If you know that there are some some of these other considerations that that are, uh, you know, whether we think they're legitimate reasons to refuse to work, they may be very, uh, very real to the employee themselves. Yep. And then with the second one there, the childcare issue. So that could be um, an infectious leave issue or it could be a human rights issue or it could be both so again in those cases it's the best thing that you can do is really just ask those first few questions to try to get to the bottom of why it is that they're seeking to leave why it is that they need it um, and whether they even qualify may not even be a question that you need to address right now if you're in a position to accommodate it and it's something that you can do anyways then you might just consider granting it kind of gratuitously but if you um, are in a position where you wouldn't qualify it unless they, or you wouldn't grant it unless they could prove that they qualified for it, then you have to look at what it is, which kind of leave they're qualifying for, whether it's under the ESA or the Human Rights Code, and then take your cues in terms of accommodating that request from those two things. So ESA leave, then it's kind of, um, they can go on the leave and they can inform you and provide evidence whenever you want. If it's human rights, then all the principles of accommodation will apply and you can try to work with them to try and find other types of accommodations um, before, sometimes before they go off and they leave. It all kind of depends on the situation. So if you have a specific situation like that and you're not sure what to do, it's probably best to, to get uh, specific advice on. That's very helpful. So, I mean, just before we leave that point, Christina, when you were talking about the application of the infectious disease emergency leave provisions to uh, to to what had been previously been layoffs or a reduction in hours uh, uh, 
I understand from that regulation that in that circumstance, the employee doesn't have to ask for the leave. It's deemed to be a leave. But in some of these other circumstances that Charles talked about, needing to provide ch child care, perhaps elder care, uh, or being sick themselves, uh, or being required to be in quarantine or in self-isolation, those are, those are items where the employees are required to request the leave, are they not? That's correct. So I think uh, there can be a, a distinction between the deemed leave, uh, which is for those employees who have been off work or who have seen a reduction. And, you know, on, on the other hand, if you have an employee who has full-time work available to them or their normal hours available to them, uh, but for another reason, say childcare, elder care, need to access the infectious disease emergency leave, um, so in those cases, they would need to request the leave. So even if the emergency leave doesn't apply to them in that circumstance, and you have work and you're asking them to come back to work, is there is there any strategic value to granting them a non-statutory leave of absence versus continuing a lay, continuing or beginning a layoff at the end of the uh, infectious disease leave? So if I'm if I'm understanding your question correctly there, it's once they've run the course of the infectious disease emergency leave, right. uh, or if they haven't been deemed to be on that leave and they're coming to you and saying, listen, I need some time off. Um, you know, there, there is always the option for the employer and the employee to enter into an agreement uh, that the employee takes some unpaid leave, set some parameters around that. Um, that's certainly, doable and, and if it's a, a unionized environment certainly take into consideration how that might work under the collective agreement um and i you know one of the the, the benefits there is if you have uh, an agreed leave as opposed to a statutory leave if you had been continuing benefits perhaps you can have an arrangement with the employee that it's no longer continued uh, perhaps the length of time works out or the, the timing. So once the infectious disease emergency leave is no longer available, um, there you may still have employees who need to be off work for reasons that may be related to circumstances that otherwise would have given rise to the infectious disease. Okay. So pretty, pretty case specific uh, uh, approach. And I think Charles' comment about that is really important that once you get to that stage, it's probably best for you to gather the evidence and uh, and seek specific advice about what to do with that particular situation. Now, on that next question that we have, I think we've answered the question about enrollment and, and uh, the need to keep staff or not keep staff. But um, we did have, in addition to the CERB questions, we, we did have a few questions in our chat about the Canadian wage subsidy and whether or not um, and whether or not that uh, might be impacted in terms of when we open or whether or not we have the enrollment to keep employees. So maybe, I know Char Charles, you're the, you're the CEWS expert at the firm. So what do, you, what do you think about that particular question? Yeah, so I saw a couple um, different kind of iterations of wage subsidy questions. So what I'll say generally and uh, this may answer your question it may not feel free to follow up if it doesn't um so it's, it's actually i was commenting to someone today it's hard to believe we're actually almost at the end of the original wage subsidy 
the length of time that it was actually proposed for. It was mid-June, I think. Right. Um, so what we've heard from the government is on May 15th, they announced that they were going to extend the wage subsidy program to the end of August, but they didn't announce, um, so for example, they had um, these specific rules about deeming eligibility. So if you qualified for the one period, you automatically qualified for the next period. So they haven't said whether or not that's going to continue on for the continuation, or if you qualify for the third period that we're in now, whether you automatically qualify for the first period of the extension. What they've said is that on May 15th, they were going to take a month to consult with businesses, figure out what kind of changes needed to be made before they announced anything. So we don't have any information yet on what, if any, changes are going to be made or how the, the next period is going to connect with the first period. But I would, so it's the, what is it, the ninth today, 10th today. I would expect that we would hear something within the next week or 10 days about how the wage subsidy is going to apply in these situations. So I know that probably doesn't specifically answer um, yeah. some of the questions, well, but I don't is, think we can. Yeah, I mean, this comes back to some of my earlier comments that, that we're, we're, we're forced to make it up as we go along to a certain extent because the rules are rolling out in, in piecemeal fashion, and, and that's understandable given the circumstances. But one of the things we did see at the beginning of the wage subsidy was that the, the eligibility criteria for uh, revenue in the month of March was a loss of 15% versus 30% in the mm -hmm. subsequent months. So, you know, I could, although we don't have guidance, I could certainly envision a similar kind of roll back into active uh, operation as you start your business up, that those, those targets might be, uh, might be different and they might be rolled out differently based on region or, or industry, depending on, uh, you know, depending on uh, how how we get back to business. So it's going to be a complicated adjustment, I would think, unless they just keep the same criteria, in which case this question number five is a very pertinent question about how do I bring employees back for reduced, uh, when in a situation with reduced revenue, when I need the employees to, to handle the reduced number of uh, children, but I don't have the revenue to pay for it. And even Amy's comments at the beginning that we're not getting any increase in the uh, in the funding from the government, even though we're being expected to layer on a number of additional uh, pre-opening and, and continued uh, public health measures as well. So there's lots to talk about, I think, going forward. Question six, um, child care gets a grant from the province and we receive the portion from January to the end of March. And usually it needs to be paid out to qualified staff within 60 days. Staff are currently on CERB. Uh, on CERB, will be will paying them the grant affect the CERB that they're receiving? Sorry, kind of botched that reading. Um, Kelsey, is that something you can address? Sure, Rob. Um, I mean, essentially, uh, and I'll steal uh, from Charles's uh, bailiwick here, but uh, I've leaned on him for CERB specifics, but. Um, as he mentioned, the, the top-up plans available, the sub-plan doesn't work for CERB. But what we do know about CERB is that as long as the supplemental income being made by an employee receiving CERB is under $1,000 in the CERB entitlement period, it will not affect their CERB payments. So if the grant payout portion is uh, less than that $1,000 for the four-week period of that CERB entitlement, then, um, you know, and keep in mind, 
Okay. It's all income for that employee. It's it's not necessarily just from you as an employer, but um, you know, if that's the only thing coming to them, then um, you know, keep it under a thousand bucks in there. Uh, or even if if there's a time frame to pay it out, I mean, you could you could yeah, certainly you could, you could line up the payment of that of that uh, of that grant portion to. Uh, to assist employees who will remain off work and would otherwise have been disentitled because I mean the, uh, the other part of it is, is this is this is the 60 days um, going to be strictly enforced and and who's going to enforce it right right now uh, you know so if you're worried about staggering payments you may be better to act as you see fit and beg forgiveness than to seek permission um, not that that is legal advice in any respect yeah the only other Sorry. thing I would add Kelsey is, and then this is kind of a, a technical legal argument, but I'll throw it out there because that's, that's kind of our job, I guess. Um, the CERB payments, the way that the legislation is drafted, I believe the exact phrase is employment income in respect of a, the period of time that the CERB benefit is paid. So if this is money that is from a period of time earlier, but it just happens to be paid out at a time when someone was, was receiving CERB, there may be an argument there for the employee to say that this is not income in respect of a CERB period. But at, at the end of the day, too, I know obviously you guys are concerned about making sure your employees are okay and getting everything that they can, whether it's a government benefit or not. But at the end of the day, it's um, do your best to fulfill your obligations and whether there's a CERB payment or whether there's a payback obligation really is something for them to deal with it later. Well, uh... This next question, I'll, I'm going to ask uh, Christina to speak to it, but I think I'm, I'm going to read it, but I'm going to give my interpretation of what the question is actually asking. It says, items that we need in order to move forward with opening a staff survey questionnaire on their ability to return to work, re-health, childcare, et cetera. So we, we did talk uh, in one of the other questions we've answered about issues that employees might raise uh, that, that would be a barrier to their return to work, including those that are uh, that fall squarely within the basis for a continued uh, infection, infectious disease emergency leave. Uh, uh, but one of the questions, one of the issues here that I think is identified that I think may have a different meaning is an employee raises a health concern for return to work. Um, and that, that might be a general disability issue that needs to be accommodated. But one of the one of the questions I've had from clients specifically is I feel that I'm at greater risk uh, of, um, of the worst outcome from COVID-19 and I don't want to come to work because I have one of these pre-existing conditions that have been identified in, in some of the early science. How do, how do we deal with those types of uh, either refusals or accommodation requests on reopening? Sure, Rob. So I think uh, just commenting on the question as it's written there to start, um, I don't know that I'd, I'd suggest a formal questionnaire or survey asking about uh, health concerns or childcare obligations. My concern there would be if, for example, as the employer, you get back 10 questionnaires, uh, some employees have indicated either a childcare obligation, an underlying health issue, uh, but haven't specifically indicated that they are not willing to return to work and then you as the employer decide okay 
uh, one, four, and six are, are healthy and have no children, they're coming back to work. I wouldn't want to open the door to a potential claim there of discrimination. Um, I think clear, consistent communication with employees is always going to be the best bet. Uh, and when you're discussing a return to work, really have that open line of communication to say, listen, is there something I, as the employer, need to know that would affect your ability to return to work? And let the employees raise it as they would um, if there's something going on. And that way you're not in a position where you, as the employer, are asking uh, for confidential medical information when the employee hasn't offered it as something that needs to be accommodated. So just to be mindful of that. Uh, and then the, the second question there of employees who are concerned either because of an underlying medical condition or some other disability about their ability to return to the workplace, the risk that that poses for them. I think in that case, as an employer, uh, the, the duty to accommodate is triggered. And I think you need to take the steps that you ordinarily would if an employee is saying that they can't come to work. So I think first, you know, it would be some medical information and documentation. Uh, so I wanna be clear that for the infectious disease emergency leave, uh, employers cannot ask for medical information to support an entitlement to that leave. But this is separate and apart from that. This is a request for accommodation because of a pre-existing disability. In that case, I think you can go through the accommodation process as you normally would. And, you know, it may be that the employee is saying, I can't return to work at all. Uh, and you as the employer are saying, okay, I, I hear you. I see the documentation that you've given me. How about this alternative solution where perhaps we put you in a low risk area? Uh, maybe you can't be out front with the children and all their germs, uh, but perhaps there's something else we can have you be doing where you're still engaged in productive work, still in the workplace, but your risk is minimized to the extent that it can be. That may take the form of, of providing PPE for that employee. Uh, if it's something related to say a clinical anxiety about returning to the workplace, maybe a graduated return to work. Um, so I think just making sure those procedural steps are taken and uh, really just not taking a, a hard line in any one instance as you're evaluating employees and refusal or a hesitance to return to work. That's very helpful. Uh, and, and again, I think once we roll into actual reopening scenarios, we're going to have a, an opportunity to, to look at specific cases with each of you when you need that assistance, but also... Uh, undoubtedly, we'll come back and have yet another program to talk about those issues, and probably more than one program. One of the one of a lot of the questions that are in the Q and I think we have answered. Um, uh, there was a question about uh, about the, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy uh, around decisions to postpone opening until September, which might be the normal uh, timelines for some of you, um, Charles. Uh, already pointed out that the wage subsidy program right now has only been extended into August. So it was extended beyond the original June timeframe. Um, we don't right now have uh, a program that's been extended into September. So if that remains the case, there will be no uh, wage subsidy program for you when you reopen in September. So that's something to think about, even if you're thinking about delaying your preparation for um, 
for preparing for the reopening, getting your sites ready in terms of meeting those guidelines, you might want to think about whether uh, whether some of that work can be done in a time frame that's consistent with when the wage subsidy is available to you. Uh, but again, as Charles pointed out, we we're going to get some more guidance, hopefully, in the in the very near future about how the wage subsidy would be uh, applied during a reopening phase, and uh, perhaps uh, we'll be able to uh, to give you more information about a further extension if that actually is provided. One thing I've noticed in the press uh, comments about the the SERB benefit is that I think the federal government is also probably getting a little bit concerned about the cost of some of these programs. So, um, you know, their, their tolerance for generosity, uh, our generosity as taxpayers uh, will, will ultimately uh, reach a limit at some point. So we have to be aware of that potential. Um, Kelsey, here, here's a, a question. If a staff is required to quarantine, does the employer have to continue salary and benefits during that period? No. Uh, absent some kind of other agreement or entitlement in an employment agreement or potentially in a collective agreement for unionized friends. Uh, there is no obligation under any of the amendments to the ESA or any of the programs in place um, at any level of government that would require an employer to otherwise pay someone who's not working. Someone asked us a question, if we have a service agreement with the city, can we shorten our day? To me, that sounds like the kind of question I might want to see the agreement uh, before giving comment on. Does anybody have thoughts about that? Uh, or do you agree with me? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, 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 we can't interpret the terms of an agreement, obviously, in, in a question like that. But uh, that, I guess it really depends on what's in that language. Christina, sorry. Oh, no problem. I actually would like to just jump back to the last question. The quarantine um, pay? Yeah, for the uh, the quarantine pay. So the one nuance I would add to Kelsey's answer there is uh, if it's a circumstance where the employer has been providing benefits to the employee past May 29th and they are now quarantined, they would be entitled to that infectious disease emergency and because it's a job protected leave, there may be that requirement to continue benefits. Salary, no, it is unpaid, uh, but benefits, perhaps, yes. Good point. Thanks for that clarification, Christina. Right, and there's, I guess, there's distinctions too between the the layoff, uh, the conversion of a layoff to a deemed uh, leave versus a leave for the other reasons that that we discussed uh, that that preexisted Reg two eighty eight twenty. So it's a lot to keep your, your mind set on because there are so many uh, threads that you can pull. Um, just looking to see, because we're, we're now getting close to two hours of our program, I, I think. I do see our numbers dwindling, but still um, amazing uh, participation and uh, attendance today. Yeah, so obviously, obviously a lot of these questions are things that are very much um, at the our minds. I, I think we've, Sorry, I'm just looking at one of these questions in the Q&A, and I haven't even gotten into the chat group. That's why I suggested if you had a question, put it in the Q&A rather than in the chat. But I think, to me, this probably looks like a, a, a logical point for us to conclude our program. There are some case-specific types of questions, and I know that we're going to come back and, and have another program specific on how do you go about the reopening. 
So I think we'll uh, we'll probably pause at this point, let you all catch your breath. You can all run back and read all the government support documents if you haven't already read them. And uh, I want to thank everyone for for sticking around as long as you have. And if we didn't get to some of the questions that you asked, uh, stay tuned for future programs. I think we'll probably be able to answer many of them. And if you have specific cases from your workplace, uh, feel free to reach out to any of us for, for assistance in working through those special issues. Um, again, a reminder, our programs will be, this program in particular will be available on our broadcast tab. So if you want to go back in and look at it again, if you want to even just roll through our slide uh, presentation and turn off the sound and don't listen to us, it's going to be there uh, probably indefinitely uh, for the for the foreseeable future. Um, and that will wrap it up. I thank everybody for joining us and my co-panelists and uh, specifically Amy uh, O'Neill for her additional support at the beginning of our program. That ends it. Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca.